Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're returning to Square One with a show we're calling Origins. We'll seek the roots of local landmarks. I can't believe that this church has existed since 1706. And we'll go back in time in local bardolatry. He was always afraid that if it got out that he was looking for Shakespeare treasures, the prices would just go sky high. Plus, we'll explore the building blocks of reading and learn how DCPS is trying to strengthen that skill. Students definitely understand that each time we're going to read, we may look at a different craft or look at a different piece of it. But we're going to begin today's show in a place whose origins extend back in time, 138 years, and space, three city blocks. We have an engraved invitation in our collection inviting people to come watch the synagogue building move. I've got it right over here. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Wendy Terman is the archivist at the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington. So what does it say? So it says, the officers and directors of the Jewish Historical Society and the Addis Israel Congregation cordially invite you and your family to witness the moving of Washington's oldest synagogue from 6th to 3rd on G Street Northwest, Thursday, December 18th, 1969, 10.30 a.m. And that new 3rd and G location is where Wendy and I are standing now, in the sanctuary of the Addis Israel Synagogue. It was built at 6th and G in 1876, but in 1969 it was threatened by demolition. So the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington, which, by the way, formed in 1960 to chronicle the story of the local Jewish community, they arranged to have the building hoisted onto dollies and relocated. Because it was so heavy, the tractors actually broke a gas line, and so they had to stop the move, and the gas company had to come and turn off the gas, and then they had to burn off the excess gas. But they were very proud they didn't lose any bricks in the course of the three-hour move down the street. So a three-hour move for three blocks, that's about an average of an hour a block? Exactly. Not bad. Exactly. For a building. (laughs) After a ton of renovation and restoration, the synagogue was rededicated and opened to the public as the Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum. But get this, in a few years, the synagogue slash museum will be moving again. Here's the society's executive director, Laura Applebaum. So we're on the edge of a big new development downtown that will deck over the 395 center leg freeway, as they call it, between where our building is and Georgetown Law School. It create three new city blocks. And so as part of the development, our building will be moved one block south. And adjacent to it, the society will build a brand new, much bigger museum. Right now, it's a small building. It's a historic site. It's the only Jewish building in the city on the National Register, and we have no gallery space. So we tell the story here of the early congregants and the early neighborhood, early Jewish roots. To tell a fuller, richer story of Jewish life in D.C., though, the society has always had to take its shows on the road. We've been at the National Building Museum. We've had an exhibit at White Flint Mall, Washington Hebrew, at each of the JCCs. But the new Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum will include galleries for permanent and traveling exhibitions, as well as classrooms, archives, offices, even a roof garden. And all of it will help the society paint a fuller picture of Washington's Jewish community, which, by the way, is thought to date back to 1795 with the arrival of a builder named Isaac Pollock. Other Jews followed. First, Ashkenazi Jews from Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, and then in the 1920s, Sephardic Jews, that is, Jews of Spanish, Portuguese, or North African descent. 
But as Laura Applebaum will tell you, this timeline was kind of late compared with other East Coast cities. This city is not a port city. A lot of other cities, New York, Boston, Philly, Charleston, Baltimore, that are all ports, they had an early Sephardic community. We didn't have an early Sephardic community. People went into other ports, other places, and then they kind of found their way here for all kinds of opportunities around the economy fueled by the government. Indeed, many Jews wound up working for the federal government, while others wound up working for themselves. 7th Street Northwest, for instance, used to be bustling with Jewish-owned shops and stores. And in the 1920s, you could find more than 300 Jewish grocers all around town. One of the things we're particularly interested in wanting to focus on is that larger story of Washington as the nation's capital, a place where local business owners, Jewish shopkeepers, interact with the federal government in unusual ways. And those unusual ways have led to some terrific stories, says archivist Wendy Terman, like the one about the party supplies shop owner who got a phone call requesting 750 miniature satin heart-shaped wedding cake boxes. And she said, okay, can I know who's going to pay the bill? And she was told, oh, the bride's father will take care of it. It's President Lyndon Johnson. And some of those satin boxes are now in the society's collection, along with loads of letters, flyers, photographs, business records, invitations, diaries, scrapbooks, family trees, immigration documents, even ceremonial and ritual objects from Jewish homes and synagogues. Where are you storing all of these things? (laughs) So we have some materials stored here. We have some materials stored off-site. And once you have your new facility, will you be able to bring everything in the same place? I would love to be able to do that. Only time will tell whether her wishes come true. As of now, the earliest the new Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum will open is the year 2020. But in the meantime, the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington will continue its mission to explore, share, and preserve the distinctive Jewish heritage of Washington, D.C. as both the hometown of a community and the capital of a nation. Society's exhibit, Through the Lens, Jeremy Goldberg's Washington, is now on display at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Northwest D.C. For more on this collection of photos of original and current sites of synagogues and other Jewish buildings, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you're curious as to what a 270-ton synagogue on wheels looks like, we have photos from that three-block move back in 1969 on our website, too. Just head to metroconnection.org. We'll head 40 miles north now and 200 years back to the War of 1812. By August 1814, British forces would sack Washington and then attack Baltimore. Some 10,000 troops defended the city's downtown area, but that piece of the story has largely been forgotten, and most of the old battlements have been paved over. But not all of them. Jacob Fenston journeyed to one grassy hill in the heart of the city where efforts are underway to uncover some of this lost history. It was originally known as Loudenslager's Hill, named after Jacob Loudenslager, a German butcher who'd set up shop on what was then the edge of the city. If you look over to our uh, south a little bit, you can see today what's the Francis Scott Key Bridge. Johns Hopkins is director of the nonprofit Baltimore Heritage, and we're standing near where Loudenslager's butcher shop used to be. Of course, back then, there was no Francis Scott Key Bridge, 
but there was a panoramic view over the harbor and over the roads approaching the city from the east. So it was here, on this strategic spot, that Baltimoreans built the fortifications they hoped would protect their homes. It was virtually everybody in Baltimore City, whether you were a recent immigrant, whether you were an aristocrat, whether you were a man, whether you were a woman, whether you were a child, everybody pitched in for the defense of the city. Thousands of residents came out to dig trenches and build berms, stretching for more than a mile along this high ground. In a few weeks, the digging will start up again in the middle of what's now Patterson Park. Baltimore Heritage is behind the project. John Bedell, the lead archaeologist for the dig, says they've already done some preliminary work. We began with a geophysical survey. Using radar to map out what's under the grass. The radar goes into the soil and bounces back whenever there's a change in the consistency of the soil. They were able to trace the path of the earthworks across the length of the park. And it comes around somewhere over here on this side, I'm not sure exactly, and then angles off sort of down toward the corner of the park. So that's what it looks like it's doing. How, John, how far down do we think they are? We don't know. So we could go down several feet. Uh, four feet easily anyway. It was September 13, 1814, when the Royal Navy began bombarding Baltimore's Fort McHenry. Just weeks earlier, the British had attacked the nation's capital, sending the president fleeing to Virginia and setting fire to the White House, the Treasury, and the Capitol building. The Americans were demoralized, and the British were hoping to deal one final decisive blow with an attack on Baltimore. To the extent that the War of 1812 was about anything... It was about whether the United States would really be an independent country. In the Battle of Baltimore, Americans finally stood up and asserted their independence. And it turned out the city's defenses were so good, there wasn't even really a battle. Out in the harbor, the Royal Navy ran out of cannonballs before doing too much damage. On land, British troops were scared off the attack. They see massive fortifications, which they hadn't really expected. They were outnumbered two to one. After the Battle of Baltimore, Hopkins says this hill was preserved as hallowed ground. In 1914, there was a big centennial celebration here. But since then, the history has kind of been forgotten. For example, my son, who's 10 years old, knows this as one of Baltimore's greatest sledding hills. That's its claim to fame. Little does he know uh, until now that he's sledding on a key part of uh, America's defense in the war against the British. The dig, which starts April 15th, is funded in part by a grant from the National Park Service. Kristen McMasters is an archaeologist with the Park Service, specializing in American battlefields. There's a couple of great mysteries here in that, you know, there was the Battle of Baltimore and there were defense works here. But our best info is actually from six weeks after the Battle of Baltimore, where it shows lots of defenses. As Baltimoreans built up fortifications for a possible second attack. So what was from the actual Battle of Baltimore and what came later? That archaeologically is going to be tough, tough, tough to figure out. John Bedell says regardless of what they find or don't find, the dig will help connect local residents to the area's history. Sometimes archaeology is about knowledge, it's about learning about the past, but also sometimes it's about connecting people to the past. Sometimes people who can't get into reading about the past can feel connected through touching it physically, through standing on it, through being on that spot and seeing it and feeling it in their hands. So we hope to use these excavations both to learn about the fortifications and to connect people, the people of Baltimore, to this part of their history. Volunteers will be able to do just that, helping Bedell and a small team of archaeologists working on the dig. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can learn more about the upcoming archaeological dig in Patterson Park on our website, metroconnection.org.
after the break. What's in a name? In the case of a certain football team, quite a lot. My sense is when he saw the opportunity to capitalize on that Native American connection, he went for it. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our next story on today's Origins show is about the roots of a big controversy here in our region, the name of our local football team. A lot of people object to the name the Washington Redskins, including Ray Halberter with the Oneida Indian Nation in upstate New York. We do not deserve to be called Redskins. We deserve to be treated as what we are, Americans. So what exactly is the origin of the word Redskin? As Lauren Ober tells us, it may come as a surprise. This is an origin story in three parts. Part one, the word. The word itself is a Native American tradition. That's Ives Goddard, a senior linguist at the National Museum of Natural History here in the district. In 2005, he wrote an exhaustive paper charting the etymology of the word redskin. Its emergence and use in Indian languages and in English has to be understood within the historical context. That context, he says, was this. Before Europeans arrived on the new continent, Native people had no word for their race. You were Apache or Ojibwe, Salish or Seneca. There was no need for any self-designation beyond that. Then the Europeans landed. Native people needed a way to differentiate the two groups, and color designation seemed like the easiest shorthand. The use of red for Indians appears in 1725 in two different places, in a French source and an English source, in talks between Indian chiefs and colonial officials. And it's what the Indians use. Goddard should know. He's been studying Native American languages his entire professional life. He speaks lots of them, and when he heard claims in the early 1990s that the word redskin was derived from the practice of scalping Indians for a bounty, he balked. A manuscript written in 1815 by Meskwaki Chief Black Thunder in his own language backed Goddard up. A word, Meskwinomashkat, means redskin. And in fact, in the same sentence, Wapeshkinomashkat, which means white skin which is a word that's still used today. The words is literally white skin in Muscogee is still the word for European. Still, Goddard accepts that while the word redskin has native origins, the way we view words and the way we appropriate and reinterpret them can change over time. Ethnic labels can rise and fall in acceptability and so forth. We all know famous examples. Some words you can't even say on, uh, on the air anymore, which 100 years ago was just kind of normal for many people. One of those ethnic labels ended up becoming a big part of Washington's cultural landscape. And that brings us to part two of our story, the team. The organization started in 1932 in Boston. They were known as the Boston Braves, their very first season of existence. Mike Richmond is the author of the Redskins Encyclopedia. He bills himself as the premier historian of the team. They had been founded by a man named George Preston Marshall and then the following year, they became the Redskins, Boston Redskins, and stayed in Boston for a total of five seasons. 
and then moved to Washington in 1937. Back in the day, it was common for professional baseball and football teams from the same city to have the same or at least similar names. In 1933, Boston's football team began playing in Fenway Park, home to the Boston Red Sox. George Marshall decided the team name should reflect the move. He kept Red from Red Sox, and he also wanted to keep that Native American theme. So Marshall went with the name Redskins. Legend also has it that Marshall wanted to honor the team's coach at the time, Lone Star Dietz, who claimed to be Sue. Plus, the team had some Native players, so in Marshall's mind, the name made sense. Marshall was a visionary, and my sense is when he saw the opportunity to capitalize on that Native American connection, he went for it. As such, in the early days, the team's coach wore a headdress on the sidelines and its players covered their faces in war paint. George Marshall also installed a marching band that played the team's fight song, Hail to the Redskins. Back then, it was acceptable. And in none of my research that I've done have I ever come across anything that said he tried to exploit Native Americans. Richmond may not feel the Redskins' name is exploitative, but that's far from a universal belief. Which leads us to part three of this story, the controversy. The first objections really date from the late 50s and early 60s. And they're only incidentally focused on sports. So says J. Gordon Hilton, a visiting professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. In 2010, he wrote a law review article about the use of Native American team names. The sort of initial wave of complaints is about the disparaging way in which Native Americans are portrayed in Hollywood films. The representation of Native Americans as savage marauders pillaging wagon trains on the plains didn't sit well. But it wasn't until the 1980s that people began to make noise about Native team names. Once people began to complain about the depiction of Plains Indians, that this is unfair and this is racist and it's highly prejudicial, then I think that also adds to the sort of pejorative character. For a long time, Native Americans have been seen as a public domain symbol for Anglo-Americans, not unlike, say, the bald eagle. But many Native people, like Suzanne Schoen Harjo, a Cheyenne and Muscogee activist, didn't appreciate being an abstract motif in American popular culture. In 1992, Harjo and seven other Native plaintiffs filed a complaint with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office against the Redskins, claiming that the team name was disparaging and should be deregistered. This would not keep the Redskins from using the name. But it would deny them the kind of economic advantages of having a protected trademark. That case fizzled on a technicality, but a new case is now being heard by the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Harjo spoke about the issue with WAMU last year. They can call themselves any old racist thing they want. The issue before the court is whether the federal government should subsidize with the exclusive right of making money that racism, and we think not. As the debate over the team's name continues, the controversy has raised some critical issues. Who owns language and who has the right to use it? And at what point can language be considered cultural property? There are no easy answers. But knowing the origins of the word in question is a first step. I'm Lauren Ober.
We'll turn now to a story about the origins of learning. Ask pretty much any teacher, and he or she will tell you that mastering your ABCs and going on to become a strong reader is the foundation of a good education. And these days, reading is a huge area of focus for D.C.'s traditional public schools, which are completely revamping their reading curriculum to make sure that foundation is a bit sturdier for district students. Kavitha Cardoza joins me now to explain what exactly that will mean for local kids. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. All right, so let's talk about this revamped curriculum. What will it look like? The change really started three years ago, Rebecca. D.C. was at the forefront of adopting the Common Core State Standards, which are the new, more rigorous learning standards being adopted across the country. And D.C. school officials have really worked on improving reading. So in the past two years, they've spent nearly $3 million on books and online subscriptions. They've bought 850 e-readers. And now they dedicate two hours each day to reading for elementary school students. And then how does that all differ from what these kids had in the past? Well, I spoke with Brian Pick, who oversees the Common Core implementation in DCPS. He says a lot of it had to do with the books the kids were given. A lot of the, the times uh, in, in past, unfortunately, students have faced, say, passages that are, are one-off passages. You often see this when teachers are doing a test preparation type work. And those are standalone passages. They are not published pieces that you and I, frankly, would enjoy reading. We would like high-quality, real text that are, are engaging. So they've spent a lot of time choosing books that are interesting and include a range of people, places, experiences. One reading specialist said, I want children to devour books, and I just love that imagery. And it sounds like it isn't just the books that are going to be different, though, that the teachers will also be teaching reading differently than they have in the past, right? Exactly. Students are being asked to do a lot more. It's no longer a teacher telling you what you just read. Kelly Rabin, a social studies teacher at Brown Education Campus, says she really pushes her students now. So if they say something, she says, why? Prove it. Find some evidence from the text. And she says students have started to say that to each other in class. Rabin says now they're learning to think critically, how to develop an argument and how to give examples. So we're reading a text on urbanization. And a student was saying that one of the positive effects of urbanization is job opportunities. So all he said was jobs. And, and I said, who? Who's getting jobs? People. What kind of people? People that are moving to cities. I really pushed him on expanding that one word to make an argument. Under the Common Core, there are fewer standards in reading and math, but teachers have to go much deeper into those fewer standards. Rabin says she loves being able to slow down and have more time to give her students. Nice. Can you uh, give another example? I spoke with English teacher Ashley Bessex from Phelps Architecture, Construction and Engineering High School. And she says students also have to do what are called close reads or deep reads, in which you read and reread the text, each time going a little bit deeper. All of the rereadings are very purposeful, and the students definitely understand that each time we're going to read, we may look at a different craft or look at a different piece of it. So the first time we may just read for comprehension, the second time around, look at characters. For the third read, it's more of an analysis or the author's purpose. So I guess an obvious question is, uh, with this new strategy, this new scenario, where do struggling readers fit in? I ask teachers exactly that because we have thousands of students in D.C. who read well below their grade level. I mean, for example, we have eighth grade students reading at a first or second grade level. And so how do they manage these even more difficult texts? 
Teachers say close reads actually help struggling readers because in the past they had just one shot at a passage and if they didn't understand it, that was it. Now they get multiple opportunities to go over the text. DCPS has also worked to create what are called text sets, different clusters of texts that talk about the same content. So, for example, Jessica Matthews-Meth, who's in charge of reading for secondary schools in DCPS, gave me this example. We might be focusing on building content knowledge of the Holocaust and the atrocities in, in, in that particular event. So we might choose a novel focused on the Holocaust, and then we might have a series of nonfiction articles that also kind of build content knowledge of the context involved. We might have poetry written during the time. We might look at video clips. We might look at artwork. And because so many students are below grade level in reading, they might have several other books about the Holocaust, so books that are much easier to understand, which can act as stepping stones as students build up to being able to understand the main text. So we're talking a lot about the Common Core here, and I know it's been pretty controversial in different parts of the country. But I'm getting the sense that things perhaps have been a bit smoother here in D.C., at least when it comes to reading. Well, I don't want to make it sound like the Common Core has been a breeze in D.C. I mean, teachers always ask for more professional development. It can take a long time to prepare for these classes. And when students don't attend school, they miss out on a lot. But in DCPS, we definitely haven't seen the kind of opposition to Common Core that some states have. Well, Kavitha Cardoza, thank you so much for catching us up on what's happening with reading in D.C. public schools. Thanks, Rebecca. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We turn now to buildings and the energy that makes them run. So if we think about the origins of our energy, our power, we have what? um, Oil, coal, natural gas, the wind, the sun, maybe biomass. Well, this week, the Environmental Protection Agency released its annual rankings of cities whose big buildings conserve energy particularly well. The EPA awards these eco-friendly buildings an Energy Star certification. And on the EPA's list, D.C. comes in second place, right behind Los Angeles. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson visited one of the district's more efficient buildings to learn why Washington could soon come in number one. Tour continues. (laughs) It should come as no surprise that a trade association dedicated to architecture would be proud of showing off its building. But the windowless room Mike O'Brien has just led me into is hardly a showpiece. It's little more than a closet holding an office chair and a computer. This is it. O'Brien is the chief financial officer for the American Society of Landscape Architects. And despite the distinct lack of style or design around right now, this room is a big part of what makes the entire ASLA headquarters a model for the EPA's Energy Star program. It's the control center for the building's automation system, a system that automatically turns lights and the heating and cooling system on or off depending on the time of day and who's in the building. So this this essentially controls everything. Over on this side, we have, this is the lights control system. The ASLA headquarters, which is located on I Street, just north of Chinatown, earned its Energy Star certification in 2013 by scoring an 89 out of 100 on the EPA's building performance scale. 
To get certified, a building must score a 75 or higher on the scale, which compares a property's energy usage to other properties of similar type, accounting for things like occupancy and size. Lauren Hodges is communications director for the EPA's Energy Star Building program. She says many people assume that the newest and shiniest buildings are the most energy efficient. But the truth is more complicated. We have buildings that were built in the 1800s that have earned the Energy Star. And we have buildings that were built last year that have earned the Energy Star. So this is what I was saying on the other side. Staffer Keith Swan is walking me around the roof of the ASLA building, a feature considered the building's crowning achievement. It captures almost all of the rain that falls on it, a relief to the city's overburdened stormwater system, and it's also expected to last three times as long as a normal roof. But ASLA is using it to show off what landscape architects can do in terms of design. It includes two elevated, wave-shaped planting areas that flank a partially shaded sitting space that is often used for parties and meetings. So as you're sitting there in the center of it, you're actually encased in the plants as opposed to everything at your feet. The walking surface is metal grating, and underneath that grating is more cultivated soil. It means 90% of the roof is covered with plants. Green roofs are more expensive. A regular roof runs about $5 to $10 per square foot, while a green roof costs about twice that much. But Mike O'Brien says green roofs more than make up for that difference over time because they're such good insulators, reducing heating and cooling costs for buildings by at least 10 to 15 percent. Think of it simply like this. It's a hat on your head. In the wintertime, it keeps the warm air in. And in the, in the summertime, it keeps the, the cold air from escaping. The ASLA building is one of the 435 Energy Star certified buildings in the D.C. metro area that helped the nation's capital earn the number two spot on the EPA's list. Number one, that goes to Los Angeles, which has held the top spot ever since the EPA started publishing its ranking six years ago. But the EPA's Lauren Hodges says D.C. is now nipping at L.A.'s heels. This year, they missed first place by only nine buildings. So it's exciting, and all eyes are on D.C. this year because we're thinking this might be the year that that D.C. pulls out all the stops and finally has what it takes to overtake L.A. for the number one spot next year. Hodges gives a lot of credit to a requirement in the Clean and Affordable Energy Act passed by the D.C. Council in 2008. That mandates that large buildings in D.C. have to measure and then publicly disclose their energy performance on an annual basis. So that's been, that's been huge because it forces all these buildings to step on that scale and really see how they're doing. Surrounding jurisdictions are doing their part as well. In 2011, Arlington started an annual program called the Green Games, a friendly competition in the commercial office sector aimed at reducing energy use, waste, and water. And Hodges says being the hometown of the federal government also gives the DMV an advantage. There's a rule that says that federal agencies can only lease space in Energy Star certified buildings. And so that's really motivated D.C.'s landlords to step up their games so that they can attract and retain federal tenants. Whether or not building managers and property owners are worried about impressing the EPA, they're all concerned about that other kind of green, their bottom line. It's why Michelle Good, director of sustainability for property management firm Ackridge, says it's pretty easy to talk her clients into making use of the Energy Star program. It's a great benefit. You know, it's, it's being green to get green. 
And apparently, property owners around the country are listening. There are 23,000 Energy Star certified buildings in the nation, but the EPA says 350,000 buildings are using the agency's Energy Star benchmarking tools in hopes of cutting costs. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Want to see energy efficiency in action? We have a video of the green roof Jonathan was talking about on our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, the origins of a legendary library dedicated to the bard. The Fulchers had no children, so they referred to their books as their boys. Stay with us. It's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are going back to the beginning. The beginning of a community, the beginning of a battle, even the beginning of a certain football team's much-debated name. We're calling today's show Origins, and our next origin story takes place in D.C.'s Capitol Hill neighborhood. All right, so I will follow you. Okay. At 201 East Capitol Street. You want me to start talking? Yeah, let's know uh, where we are, where we're going. Okay. Inside a well-known institution dedicated 82 years ago this month, on April 23rd, the birthday of William Shakespeare. We are approaching the founder's room of the Folger Shakespeare Library. The founders refer to Henry and Emily Folger, and they developed an amazingly large and complete collection of Shakespeare items. Stephen Grant has a brand new book out on the Folgers. The name of the book is Collecting Shakespeare, the Story of Henry and Emily Folger. And that amazingly large and complete collection he refers to, we should probably put an emphasis on the word amazing. The library has many, many objects. Probably the most famous are the 82 first folios. This was a volume produced in 1623, a few years after Shakespeare died. It's a compilation of 36 Shakespeare plays. But beside those folios, there are 92,000 other books that the Folgers collected over a 40-year period. Which, as Grant likes to note, comes down to six books a day. Sadly, Henry died in 1930, so the Amherst grad never saw his library completed. But now, more than eight decades later... It houses some 275,000 books, along with scads of playbills, records, maps, charts, drawings, costumes, statues, etc., making it the largest Shakespeare collection in the world. And as Stephen Grant points out, Henry and Emily Folger's collection really stood out from the private libraries their social peers were assembling during the Gilded Age. A lot of collectors who had the money went to book dealers and said, what should be in a gentleman's collection? They weren't necessarily going to read these books, but they thought they looked very nice in their library. And the Folgers never saw it that way. They wanted to put together a collection of books that scholars all over the world could come and consult and use to further their own understanding of Shakespeare and his times. One of my favorite things you write in the book is toward the beginning, and you talk about Henry and Emily Folger, and how they had a double love story. What were those two stories? Henry and Emily 
spent a lot of time together. They were rarely separated, so there are no love letters from one to the other. When Henry went on a business trip, he would write a very perfunctory, having a good time, and they would address each other by their initials. Very formal, but also very secretive. But it's clear that Emily and Henry loved each other, so you had that relationship of the couple, and they both loved Shakespeare. And in the reading room, very close to us, above the portraits of the Folger, is a bust of Will Shakespeare, which is modeled after the one in the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, which is placed above Shakespeare's bones. So I like to say that you have Will, you have Henry, you have Emily, and in Anglo-American literary history, this is the most famous ménage à trois. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful example of, of the marriage of true minds that Shakespeare refers to in uh, his sonnet 116. Very much so. Henry and Emily put together the perfect collecting machine. When Henry came home at the end of the day, Emily had gone through auction catalogs that had arrived from the British auction houses. She had turned down the corner of the page. She had taken her pencil and put a big question mark as though to say, Henry, we need this for our collection, don't we? (laughs) And then Henry would spend half of the night putting together a bid list, and the bid list would be sent out to auction houses in New York or in London, and then that would be the beginning. It, It was a marriage of two minds, And when they put together their collection, it was very much a joint enterprise. And that isn't always the case with collectors. Let's talk about the history of this building. How did the Folgers go about securing this location, and why did they want the building here, you know, in the nation's capital? I found in the underground vault, going through a lot of separate small notes and papers, a penciled list of 10 locations. It was undated. And here are some of the locations that were included. Amherst, Brooklyn, New York, Washington, D.C., Stratford-on-Avon, and a few more. Uh, During the First War, 1919, Henry and Emily were waylaid at Union Station because of a delay in some of their train scheduling. It was raining, And they walked those 10 minutes from Union Station to Capitol Hill, and they started looking around. And what resulted from this walk was a letter sent to a real estate agent. And the letter said, Dear sir, would you please inquire very cautiously about these four locations on Capitol Hill according to this map which I am enclosing? And there, in Henry's hand, you had numbers one, two, three, and 4. Number 2 was the location where it actually is, the Fulcher Shakespeare Library, which is 201 East Capitol Street, southeast. Very soon after the Fulchers decided that this would be the best one, they secretly started buying up 14 red brick row houses And this was property referred to as Grant's Row. This is a very opulent street, and it took them over eight years to buy out the owners or to wait for 
leases to run out. And when in 1928, 29, they had possession of all of those 14 row houses, one day Henry Folger reads in the newspaper that the Library of Congress is going to build on that property their annex because they had run out of space. The annex would have taken the whole plot, which is plot number 760, and Henry didn't buy up the whole plot. He bought up only one quarter of it. And he wrote the most moving letter to the Librarian of Congress, Herbert Putnam, saying, do I understand that I will have to look elsewhere for a location for my Shakespeare collection? And another librarian of Congress might have written back to say, sorry, Mac, that's life in the big city. (laughs) But he didn't. He wrote back and said, having you as a neighbor would be perfect. We complement each other. We are general, you're specific. We're public, you're private. We couldn't ask for anything better. And I understand there was a bit of discussion about what to call the place. That's right. Uh, For a while, the word memorial was on the Folgers' mind, that this would be a memorial library. And then uh, they decided that that wasn't very good, so they would call it a foundation, and then they, no, that wasn't really right. So when the Folgers decided on Folger Shakespeare Library, Henry wrote the architect to say, we want this to be called the Folger Shakespeare Library, but we want the word Shakespeare to be written in a larger font than Folger or Library. And that's what it it is on the outside. Stephen Grant will be reading from his new book, Collecting Shakespeare, the story of Henry and Emily Folger, this Sunday afternoon at 4 at the Hill Center. You can learn more on our website, metroconnection.org. And the Folger Shakespeare Library is presenting a ton of special events this year to celebrate the Bard's 450th birthday. We have more information about those revelries on our website, too. That's metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us about a century after Shakespeare's death to the early days of the American colonies. That's when Rehoboth Presbyterian Church was founded in Westover, Maryland. It's been serving locals for more than 300 years now, and we'll hear all about it on On the Coast. A regular segment about life on Maryland's eastern shore and in coastal Delaware. Brian Russo swung by the church for a Sunday service to meet the congregation and hear about its connection to the man known as the founder of American Presbyterianism. This is the Sunday service at Rehoboth Presbyterian Church in Westover, Maryland. Rehoboth Presbyterian was founded here on the banks of the Pocomoke River in 1706, and it describes itself as the oldest Presbyterian church in America. The history surrounding this church actually dates back to the mid-1600s. A man named Colonel William Stevens settled in this area and founded a plantation that he named Rehoboth. He opened his home to people from a number of different denominations over the ensuing years, and eventually he decided there was a need for regular church meetings. He sent a request to Europe for a minister, and the person that was sent back was Francis McKemmy, who is now known as the father of American Presbyterianism. To learn more about this church's rich history, I sat down with this guy. 
My name is David Pollock. I've been a member here, and I'm also session clerk uh, since 1995. I have a Presbyterian background. In fact, I'm a, a PK or a minister's son wow. from uh, Falkirk area. Um, came here to work for Purdue in 1983, and uh, first I'd never heard of McKemi until I came here, and we had a breakfast one Sunday down here and felt kind of a, an association with the place. So eventually what's happened, I've worked my way down here and become uh, involved with the church and become a member. And of course, McKemmy <clears throat> has often been called the father of American yes. Presbyterianism. Yes. But for this church, it actually starts with in, in the mid-1600s with a yes. gentleman called uh, Colonel William Stevens. Yes. Tell me about him. Um, we don't really know much about Colonel Stevens. I think he came from Buckinghamshire originally, so he may have been one of the second or third sons from a wealthy family that came across here to make their own um, way. But he became a politician, and the name Rehoboth originated with him because that was his plantation name. For some reason, and I don't think he had a Presbyterian or, or a dissenting background. I think he was Church of England. So it's interesting that he wrote a letter from here that went to the presbytery of Lagan, in, which is now Donegal area, asking for a, a dissenting minister, asking for a minister. And they sent McKemmy. <laughs> and they sent McKemmy. What is the thing about this church that really solidifies to you that for your personal faith that you're exactly where you should be? I think I was unknowingly led here. Also, I should say that I was able to organize a 2006 tricentennial celebration because I've had some organization experience in the past with international conferences, things like that. So I felt it was easy for me to do something like that and, and line it up and get it going. So I think there may be a need of being identified there. Um, what I like is I can't believe that this church has existed since 1706. It's almost as if it's been protected, this yeah. here, this building. And we have enough money to keep the building in pretty good shape. Well, it's hard to keep the materials because they, they don't make it like they used to, but we'll replace brick with brick when we can find it. Right. So there's, there's a definite interest in that. Because even back in Scotland, the church I grew up in was only 150 years old. Right. So coming here to something that's over 300 years old... <laughs> You don't think about it coming to the new world, that, that something like that can happen. That was Rehoboth Presbyterian member David Pollock speaking with coastal reporter Brian Russo. Brian's been doing a whole series of stories about faith on the coast for our sister show, Coastal Connection. You can find links to some of those stories on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll wrap up today's show in Virginia, where one of our region's best-known planned communities celebrates its 50th anniversary this month. Reston, Virginia, was the brainchild of a wealthy New Yorker named Robert E. Simon. His family had owned and managed Carnegie Hall for decades. Simon sold that venerable landmark to the city of New York in 1960. A few years later, he bought a piece of land in northern Virginia, about half the size of his native Manhattan. And in 1964, that piece of land became a kind of urban utopia with self-contained neighborhoods and no restrictions based on race. 
Metro Connections' John Hines sat down to talk with Simon at his favorite cafe on the eve of his 100th birthday and sent us this audio postcard. Having a contract to buy property that was half the size of Manhattan, what to do with it? (laughs) Well, clearly it was too big for a shopping center. And I sat down with a yellow pad and wrote down everything that I could think of that would work on a property that size. And I had been to Europe and I had been around the United States. So I listed all of these things that I had seen and then I struck out a few that seemed irrelevant. The county had said we need a name for this before we can go forward with processing your plans and we need it by next Monday. So PR person came up with Simon City and that didn't appeal to me very much. (laughs) So my wife and my mother came up with the idea of Reston, Robert E. Simon Town. It's not unfair to say that in the housing market, typically the things that sell most are bathrooms and kitchens, and Reston is selling community. Uh, Certainly in the early days, there were people who considered themselves pioneers and who packed up and left someplace in the Middle West to come here because they wanted to be in this place. The reason Reston continued to prosper was because the small portion of U.S. citizens who value community are there, and one of the places in the United States they want to go to is Reston. That was Reston, Virginia founder Robert E. Simon speaking with Metro Connections' John Hines. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Benston, Lauren Ober, Kavitha Cardoza, and Brian Russo, along with reporter John Hines. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. And thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll visit the more rural corners of our region with a show we're calling Town and Country. We'll hear about one woman's mission to save southern Maryland farmland. We'll meet the Delaware residents who rallied to save a local theater. And we'll bring you the latest installment in our literary series, Bookend. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.